welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. Episode 18. We are talking about unity, getting practical about denominational reunion. You know what I'm going to get practical about? In 24 hours from the time of this recording, I will be on the ice playing hockey again. Wow, I am excited. It has been too long. I have missed it. By the time you listen to this, I could be, you should think about this, I could be on the ice, picture me, I'm slicking my hair back, i got my gear on, maybe I'm giving someone a mean mugging. I'm giving them the look, you know? Maybe I'll be in a fight. You think I won't? I could be, in a, I could be scrapping right now. Yeah, just just try to touch my goalie. See what happens. I, I'll I'll scrap. I'll throw down. There there ain't there ain't no reunion on the ice. But you know what I do want re- reunion in is with the church denominational reunion. You like that transition? Getting practical about denominational reunion. We are on the fourth session of the Real Unity series talking about charting a path towards denominational healing. And this is when we're going to try to talk about some practical solutions. But I am going to acknowledge right in the beginning that finding practical solutions is very difficult. And I think a lot of that has to do with our environment. Denominational divide, where we are currently with hundreds if not thousands of different denominations is all we know. Every one of us has been raised in a church context in which all we know is different denominations. And we know that the Baptists don't get along with the Presbyterians, we don't work together, who don't get along with the Anglicans, who don't get along with the Methodists, who don't get along with the Pentecostals. Like, this is all we know. We only interact with our tribe. And that that's all we know. So it's like this often in church history when the generations that are so steeped in this is how it's always been or this is all we know, they find it very difficult to take perspectives that are outside of that perspective, to enlarge it. And that's something we have to be aware of. Am I so motivated and amped to keep my denominational thinking and and so highly... Uh, treasure the fact that I have a denominational identity, that it might be actually more a product of the fact that this is all we know, rather than a product of careful scriptural application of God's truth, like like applying what Christ said and what what the Word of God says into how we should actually live. I do think there's a lot of cultural influence there that we might help to ask ourselves how much we're influenced by that. This is all we know. Not only that, but it's hardly ever talked about. I mentioned before that this is not something that is out there talked about very much. That makes it tough to find practical solutions because very few people are trying to find practical solutions. And immediately when someone brings it up, we want to say, we want to like brandish them a liberal. And I don't think that's very helpful. We are polemically raised against other denominations and other traditions. And this is true even in the so-called more open 
denominations. So even being raised a charismatic, being taught heavily, heavily that we must love, 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 and even to the point where we are just blatantly covering over abject heresy uh, under the name, under the auspices of being loving, uh, even in that type of context, I did not know anybody outside charismatic circles. And any other Christian I heard of, I was implicitly supposed to view them suspiciously. So this just is natural with our environment. Although I have a somewhat unique position here in this whole thing. See, I am very doctrinally passionate. Um, dogmatics is something that I'm very, that I love. I love to read doctrine. I love to read confessions and histories of confessions. And I like to get into, into the deeper matters of the faith and biblical study. I teach uh, the Bible every single week. So I'm very doctrinally passionate, but also given my upbringing, I retain somewhat of an ecumenical spirit. Now, I, I was try, I've been trying to avoid that word ecumenical because it comes with so much baggage and anybody who has a, a theological background to them, probably like, as soon as someone talks about ecumen, ecumenicism or being ecumenical, it's just like, oh, the people who are relativists. Like, no, that, that, that's not fair. So I have somewhat ecumenical spirit still from those days. Like, I want to see a bunch of fellowship. And that's reflected even in my own practices, which I talked about in weeks prior. But I have a lot of connections with believers of other traditions. And that is something that I've purposely formed in my life. But it also just naturally happens. I don't work all that hard to be connected with Presbyterians here in Windsor or with other Baptists who are not part of my denomination. And I still have connections with Charismatics. I don't have to work hard, because it's just what I naturally do. I, I try not to look at my friends as, oh, these are the Presbyterian ones, these are the Charismatic ones. Like, they're just my Christian brothers and sisters. And that's how I try to look at them first. And so I, I am in a somewhat different position than others, where I have denominationally hopped uh, a couple times already. And I think that's... Uh, it, it comes with some risks, of course, but I'm trying to just see it for the benefits of it. Now, there's an article that I recently read, and I was very pleased to read it because it basically argues along similar lines that I do. It was written by Peter Lightheart, a theologian, and his article is called Visible Church Means Visible Unity. And he argues that the New Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king, huh, hint, hint, is coming to earth. In fact, it's here already, understood as God's kingdom, and God is expanding his kingdom through us, his church. He has given us one true church, and there is one city of the great king, one new Jerusalem, one kingdom that God spreads on earth through the work of us, through the work of his church, and we are members, if you are a believer, you are members of this city of the great king. That's why my tagline, even on my website, is a podcast for kingdom builders. We're all one. There's one Jerusalem, one church. And he, Peter Lightheart, that is, in this article, Visible Church, Visible Unity, he gives this uh, interesting uh, fictional conversation that happens in a city where a building is being built and some people are having a talk. And here's the conversation. Did you hear about the invisible building downtown? Other guy, what? The invisible building, you know, the, the one with all the scaffolding. 
It's not invisible. I can see the scaffolding and the walls. Ah, but we can't see the finished building yet. That doesn't mean the building is invisible. It means it's unfinished. Yeah, 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 that's what I mean. It, it's invisible. Why do you talk so strangely? Now, the answer to the, that last question may be because I'm a theologian. <laughs> Sometimes we can try to be so precise with our definitions and language that we end up not making a whole lot of sense. And what Lightheart was talking about is this emphasis on the invisible church. And the invisible church is, there's some truth to it. If you're studying it, studying it from an ecclesiastical perspective, like if you're doing ecclesiology, the study of church, that's a, that's a relevant category. But it's not a relevant category as a noun, like church the noun. Uh, it's not relevant to talk about the invisible church. All we have is the physical, visible church, real, flesh and blood, people, buildings, uh, sacraments. Like, that is what we're talking about. And so for a noun, invisible church makes no sense, just like the invisible building makes no sense. Um, although it is a relevant category in other ways to think about this. So visible church, though, my point is, means visible unity. And so how do we get some visible unity? I've already peppered a few applications in prior episodes as well as already now. But it could bear helpfulness to... Uh, go to what the historic reform definition was of a true church. So what what is this true kingdom? How do you, who's in it? What is the definition of a true church? The historic reformed understanding was it's threefold. You have the right preaching of the gospel, number one, the right administration of the sacraments, number two, and number three, the right practice of discipline. So gospel, sacraments, discipline. So then you think about that, well, there's a lot of churches that preach the gospel. You're not actually a church if you don't preach the gospel and teach it. Uh, every church that I've ever seen does, uh, performs baptisms and the Lord's Supper. I'm sure there's some who don't, but those are not churches then. And then discipline. Sadly, this is the one that is often missed and neglected. But uh, even if they don't do discipline well, if there's still somewhat of an in informal process of discipline, um, that's a consideration. So gospel, sacraments, discipline. The devil's in the details, though. Like, what does it mean to have right preaching of the gospel? Does that mean you have to proclaim justification by faith in every single sermon or you're not part of the true church? Like, of course not. So the devil's in the details. But we have to confess that there are plenty of churches and denominations which, to stronger or weaker degrees, fit the bill. They are preaching the gospel, they are administrating the sacraments, and they do practice some form of discipline. Now, a lot of churches and denominations will be weak in these categories, but it doesn't mean they're not doing them. They can still fit the bill. Remember, because of our denominational divide, some of our best and brightest theologians and teachers will be drawn to a certain theological tradition, leaving the other traditions with very few of the intellectuals, those who set the standard for how things go on a, on a doctrinal theological teaching level. So there's a lack of teachers in some denominations which are still preaching the gospel, still administering sacraments, and still doing forms of discipline. So there's going to be weak ones, but it doesn't mean that just because we think they're weak at it that they are kicked from the kingdom, they're kicked out of the city, they're kicked from the New Jerusalem. Um, 
Now, I will be mentioning liberalism in a second, but before I get there, we're looking at practical solutions, as I said, on historical issues, uh, government issues, and doctrinal issues. And I'm going to go in that order because I'm going from harder to, or easier to harder. Uh, historical issues, practical solutions on historical issues. For instance, in, during the 1500s, you had uh, in France Huguenots, which were French Protestant Christians, and the Roman Catholic Church. And they had a lot of tensions, and one day, there was, we don't, the claims go both ways as to how this happened, but however it happened, the Catholics were given orders somehow, maybe, to kill the Huguenots where they stood, to kill the Protestants. And some will claim that there was just misunderstanding of what was said, but either, no matter how it happened, 30,000 Huguenots were slain in a day from Catholics. Now, that is a abhorrent event that happened. There are other things that have happened, too. The Irish Protestants and the Irish Catholics have fought physical battles and wars against each other. That's, those aren't the only cases. There's, there's a whole bunch of different uh, violent events that have happened on a historical level. And even if we're going to get away from violence, there have been pretty nasty church splits, accusations of heresy, uh, a lot of hurt feelings, whatever. There can be very bitter church splits that happen. So what do we what do we do with these historical issues? Like some denominations are here just because they split over an emotional issue or a personal issue, and not so much a theological one. These things happen. We're human. Well, if we're going to start coming to solutions on historical issues, that this is easier than the others because this is just the truth that we cannot judge current adherence with ancestors' sins. You know, just because, um, I'll use the St. Bartholomew's Massacre again, the one where the Catholics slayed 30,000 Huguenots in one day, we can't judge the modern French Catholics by what happened 500 years ago. We can't judge them with the ancestors' sins. I love... Um, I love the account of Jesus and his disciples coming before the blind man, and the disciples are like, "Who? What, what's the reason that he's blind? Is it for his sins or his parents' sins? Christ is like, this is a paraphrase, but it's not for his sins or his parents' sins that he is born blind, but rather that the works of God may be worked through him. And that helps us to not... Uh, it helps us to be able to not think of, oh, this is where we are. That means I have to go blame their ancestors for it. We actually are mandated to forgive, and that's the next part. Even if something horrible in the past has happened, our ancestors did it to their ancestors, we, uh, or we were the ones whose ancestors were, were hurt or killed or, or whatever, we are mandated to forgive. And this is the case, um, or especially if they seek repentance, but the, then you're mandated to forgive, of course. But we're in a spot where, in a lot of denominations that split over more personal issues, all the original actors are all dead. You have the descendants of those. We cannot be judging current current uh, people with their ancestors' sins. We're, we're guilty for our own sin, not other people's sins. Um, it's not a legitimate excuse to be separate. 
these types of things. Uh, the, the final consideration for that is people and groups change over time. Just because things were super heated back then doesn't mean it is now. I even think of uh, the Queen Elizabeth II's recent passing. You know, what's really interesting is that the Americans, or the colonists, we'll call them at the time, in the 1760s and 1770s, had a war, a literal war, against the monarchy, against Britain. And they fought, it was very bloody, and they ended up winning their independence. But British sentiment was not strong. There was a lot of hostility between the Anglican Church in North America and then with the other Protestants of North America, the Presbyterians, the Baptists. They did not get along with the Anglicans, the Church of England. So... But, but times change. Things change. Think in the wake of Queen Elizabeth II's death, there's a lot of Americans and Canadians who are paying homage. They're being they're respectful to this. We're not celebrating the death of Queen Elizabeth or like death to the British monarchy or something like that. Like there's things change. We're actually we're quite allied. Uh, America and Britain are quite allied with one another today. So things change. Think of this more as wrongfully separated spouses being required to seek reconciliation. That's that's the better image. We, we sometimes, if when I bring up denominational mergers, and re, church reunion really is the better term for it, but we can think of like, like a contract negotiation between the CEOs of corporations. Like they're coming at it, well, you need to conform on this, and I need you to check this box, and... I don't know, you need to give me something, and maybe we'll see, and we got to work out ownership, and who gets to be better, uh, have more authority to judge, like, we, we, we treat it like it's a, like it's a contract negotiation, like this is, this is worldly business, when it's not, this is not, we're going to merge and reconcile if they satisfy all my negotiated demands, like if a husband or a wife sinfully leaves, they are required to seek reconciliation, to come back. Uh, and then, of course, you, you can go back to my, my marriage series to, to see how that all works out. But that's kind of what it is, in a sense, with all this denominational divide. This is wrongfully separated spouses being required to seek reconciliation. This is, we need to get out of our malaise. Um, and I know there's people who disagree with me, but... Um, I hope you disagree for a good reason, and yeah, I've already talked to some people who do disagree, and I'm, I'm very happy to talk about these things further. So that's historical issues. I think that one's pretty simple, but uh, then we get to a slightly harder one, and that's governance issues. So in terms of church government, as I mentioned, there are three major branches. There's the Congregationalist a form of government, that is, each church is essentially its own uh, highest authority. And this is typical in your Baptist churches. A lot of charismatics are congregationalist. Uh, a bunch of churches are. And so you have local elders or local pastors, and they are the, the authority there. And usually the denominational connections that they have are by way of associations or by um, leagues, uh, something like that, or fellowships. Like, we're not the... The, the Fellowship Baptist Church here in Windsor can't decide anything for the Fellowship Baptist Church in Sarnia. Like we have agreements, and we there's things that we, we work on, we can do conferences together, we can support missionaries together, but one church doesn't have authority over the other, and there's no greater council 
that would make decisions for the churches. It's kind of like a, a, a willing party together, essentially, but we don't have authority over each other. So that's congregational government. And then there's the government of Episcopalianism, the Episcopal government, which is, that's kind of what you got with the, the Roman Catholic Church and with the Anglicans, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, they are Episcopalian. So you have um, bishops over areas of churches, and then it keeps going up. It's kind of, it's monarchical. So you, you end up having your figurehead um, over at the top. And so there's, there's that form of government. That's the one that I've never had any real exposure to on a personal level. Um, so, that, so that's one. And then the final one is the Presbyterian form of government, which is uh, the representatives from local churches form presbyteries, and they have presbytery meetings, and then they can discuss stuff and what happens at at these presbytery meetings or at synod, if you go one step higher, it does become authoritatively binding on the churches when they agree on stuff. So, uh, but there's no like monarchical figure at the top. It's all councils from elected representatives, essentially. So those are the three big governance, governance types. And admittedly, it might be that the closest we get on denominational reunion is a three-way reunion. That is, we might have to settle for reunion where all the congregationalists come together under some form of association or fellowship. All of the Episcopalians come together and unite under a single diocese. And all the Presbyterians come together under, their, under the form of Presbyterianism. So it might be that that's the closest we get for a long time, but that's still better than nothing. And I could be wrong. Maybe we won't divide, uh, or the, maybe the closest we unite won't necessarily be on government, but it seems to me that it would be that way. That due to the nature of government and how people interact with governing authorities, that we might, the closest we get might be in a threefold manner. And that's better than having the 300 dozen different ways of doing this and being that divided. If that's the closest we get uh, for a while, that's okay. That's better than nothing. Let's, let's work towards that. Although I will say on government, we should maybe put more stock into the qualities of the leaders of these churches, denominations, bodies, associations, presbyteries, dioceses, we should pay more attention to the qualities of the leaders than the exact governance type. Because there are, there's downfalls with each type. So if you think of the, uh, the congregationalist type of government, a huge downside is every church is essentially does, does its own thing. There's one church that's trapped in error or liberalism or something like that. There's no outside authority to come in and adjudicate matters. There's no middle court. There's no higher court above it. So you're really trusting on each individual church to be voluntarily aligned to with one another, and uh, but there's no higher authority there. And then the danger of Episcop the Episcopal form of government is what if you have a bad actor at the top? Like the Pope. What if, what if you have a really bad actor up there who who isn't serving the people well and isn't a godly man and all these types of things. And 
So you will be stuck under pretty bad leadership. And it's the same thing with the Presbyterian form of government. What if the, the elected leaders become corrupt? Like you have all the you, you have all these issues that you could come to in every form of government. So more than the government type, let's focus more on our leaders being those of strong moral and spiritual quality. Um, now I will say that given that this could be the closest we get, at least the way I'm thinking about it now, I could be wrong, but that means we should start by uniting with denominations in our own tradition. So the Presbyterians should be seeking mergers with other Presbyterians, uh, those who are actually Christian. I'm not advocating for liberal reunion. And same thing with the, the different fellowships of Baptists. And I'll even take evangelicals broadly. Uh, different evangelicals who are congregationalists in nature, so Methodists are congregationalists typically, um, as are your your Pentecostals, your most of your Baptists, basically all your Baptists. So once the Baptists can unite under some type of association, then we can expand it to a broad evangelicalism and start working in the Methodists, working in the Pentecostals. And I know there's a lot of fears and there's a lot of doubts about this. And can this even happen in our lifetime? Uh, it's going to take a long time. I get that. But each form should start uniting with their own tradition first, and we expand from there. So even if we don't end up in the threefold split that I've already mentioned, that uh, we, we got to do it even before that. So all the conservative Presbyterian churches got to start merging with other faithful Presbyterian uh, denominations. Same with the Baptists. And then we'll see. Once we have that, then we can expand it out. Because it's not just, hey, we're all together one church again. That ain't, that's not happening for a very long time. So we have to work on our own people first. Okay, now let's go to doctrine. And this is the big one. That's usually what gives people most pause. Like, oh, but we don't... We, we're more advanced in doctrine. Like, we... We've, we would be losing important doctrine if we merged with another denomination. Okay, so and there's a lot of other concerns than just that one, but let's think about doctrine for a second. Think about your Bible. Your Bible has a lot to say about uh, certain topics, and it has very little to say about other topics. I do think that the Bible talks about church government. I mean, of course it does. But it doesn't talk about how to do church government even close to as much as it talks about justification by faith. Or as God is our creator and Lord. Or of our Christology. Uh, Christ being sinless. Christ being the son of God. Christ being uh, killed on the cross for our sins. Christ being raised from the dead. Christ ascending on high. There's a lot more about that than there is about how to do church government. What I'm getting at is we should major on the majors when it comes to doctrine. And when we're thinking about re reunion with other denominations, we major on the majors. Do they teach justification by faith? Do they teach God is creator and Lord? Do they teach all the things of Christology that I just mentioned? Do they teach the Trinity? Do they teach the solas? Now, even as I'm talking now, I'm already more narrowed than what a lot of the ecumenicalists would want. 
like the solas, those are the solas of the Reformation. So I'm already weeding out uh, denominational reunion right now with any tradition that does not accept the solas of the Reformation. Could there be a day where those who do not hold to the solas of the Reformation one day get reunited with us? I'm thinking Eastern Orthodox? Roman Catholic? Is it possible that in a few hundred years they have moved in their doctrinal stances? Uh, for instance, at least one author has said that he believes that the Roman Catholic Church has been taking the doctrine of justification by faith a lot more seriously in recent decades, like from a real perspective, not just a, oh, we're going to pay lip service to it, uh, than they have in, in previous centuries. Now, I don't know if that's true, but we don't know how things are going to look in the future. But let's major on the majors for now. And the solas, of course, are we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. So grace, faith, Christ, scripture, um, glory. Those are the, the solas of the Reformation. We can... And so do these churches believe that? And do they teach the Great Commission and live like they have a mission on this earth? It would be very hard to seek immediate union with denominations which would be considered hyper-Calvinist, for instance. Now, I don't know of a denomination that is altogether hyper-Calvinist and doesn't care about missions at all. But I'm just putting categories there. Let's major on the majors. Do they have those things already? That's a good start. Um, is we need to come to a point where, rather, we need to recognize that there is doctrinal toleration that is required. We don't, we can't all agree on every point of doctrine to be united. We are going to disagree on certain things, even on somewhat trivial matters, like what is the baptism of the dead that is talked about in the New Testament? You can have 50, 50 different ideas about what the apostle is, is referring to when he talks about the baptism of the dead. We don't know for sure what he was talking about. Now, that's a smaller matter, but it just goes to show that we are not going to fundamentally agree on every single point of doctrine. There is a certain amount of toleration that we are going to need to have. And this toleration can come from different emphasis of understanding. What I'm talking about, because that might sound confusing, um, I'm going to give a pro tip to you. This, this is a good one, actually. When you are discussing with people of a different tradition or who have a different understanding than you on an issue, you should preempt their concerns uh, when you're talking to them. What I mean by that, so if, if an Arminian and a Calvinist is talking, what is the Arminian concerned about? He's concerned about upholding man's responsibility for his sin. What is the Calvinist concerned about? He is concerned with the sovereignty of God. Now, a Calvinist who rightly understands the doctrine uh, a, like, understands that there is man is responsible for his sin. And an Arminian who knows his stuff is also not trying to, uh, is not saying that they don't believe in the sovereignty of God. But the emphasis is different. Now, I don't think the Arminian's correct. I think the Arminian is, is actually very incorrect on this issue. But. What I'm saying about preempt their concerns, if you are the Calvinist in that discussion and you're starting to have a debate with them or you're, you're hammering these things out, what's not going to be all that helpful is hammering down on God's sovereignty. Because their concern is man's responsibility. So you would be far more effective in that conversation 
if you begin to teach our understand the reformed understanding of man's responsibility as a Calvinist, like how Calvinism does a better job of upholding man's responsibility than than Arminianism does. So like, and you don't even have to make it polemical against them. If you're, but preempt their concern. Their concern is man's responsibility. Well, we don't deny man's responsibility. So focus there, and you can do that in various different ways. This this goes with a lot of different things, but preempt somebody else's concerns when you have a conversation with them. It'll make you a much more effective communicator. Now, again, I want to note, this is not theological relativism. Liberal denominations and churches do not fit the bill of a true church. Remember what I said before about preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, practicing discipline. Liberal churches don't fit the bill. They, they have moved off to definitionally a liberal a church is one who has moved off of the authority of scripture and made it essentially free reign. So if the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, they say, yeah, well, maybe at that time, or they had limited understanding, we've moved on, it's, it's not actually a sin anymore, it's okay, there's openness. No, that you're a liberal then. Anyone who has moved off of the authority of scripture, uh, what the Bible teaches, is a liberal. And we are not... I am not advocating for reunion with liberals. Hence my warning, I gave a warning in the first episode, or the first session of the Unity uh, ones, to the Pentecostal Charismatics. I said that many of you are ripe for apostasy. Now, I didn't say you are all apostates. I said you are ripe for it, because there are certain doctrines that have been allowed and are being taught and becoming dogmatic in in your circles which open you up to a lot of liberalism and i'm what i'm referring to here is the ordination of women this is not an issue uh where that the bible is silent about and i know that you reinterpret you have your interpretation of what paul means when he says what he says or what Peter means, or what, what all the different passages. Um, however, there is a very clear-cut case that can be made that once you have started to allow the ordination of women, you're not allowing scripture to say what it says on that topic, you are introducing liberalism. And it's not all that shocking that when denominations begin to allow the ordination of women, and that becomes something that happens it's not very long after before they do not have effective tools of fighting against sodomy, homosexuality, gay marriage, um, and eventually, I don't know how those denominations would be able to withstand transgenderism either. So that, that's why I warned it. Uh, that, that's an element where I want denominational reunion, but I would not advocate that conservative denominations have reunion with denominations that have liberalized on doctrine like that. That's something where we would not up, we, we would not be teaching uh, liberal doctrine, even the one of ordain, ordaining women to the ministry, to being preachers to over men in our churches. That's not happening. So I would not advocate for that. So the rule here is we merge unless we cannot out of conscience. But then you must heavily examine, heavily examine your conscience to what is actually a conscience issue here. 
ordination of women, that would be a conscience issue because the Bible is not quiet about this. Um, there, there's a lot of things where we could, uh, that we don't have to put on the level of conscience. I argue that baptism is not on the level of conscience issue, that we cannot be unified if we don't have agreement on baptism, be it mode or, or be it uh, who. So heavily examine your conscience. What, what Am I actually majoring where the Bible is majoring and then minoring where the Bible is minoring? Now, we should have doors wide open in our denominations for others to join. I'm, I'm going to use the example here of FEB, Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, and the CBOQ, Canadian Baptists of Ontario and Quebec. CBOQ is known as a more liberal Baptist denomination here in Canada. And uh, the FEB, for instance, a more conservative Baptist denomination, should have its doors wide open for CBOQ members and churches to join us. Um, this is just one of those things where we are not going to be so inward looking that we're only going to promote people who come from our own theological institutions and our own churches that we're closed off to anybody else joining. No, if there's a conservative church in CBOQ, come join FEB. Come do it. Uh, we want mergers. We, we don't want, we don't want more, uh, disunion, disunity. And... There's another fear that once we start unifying with all these people who don't know as much or whatever, that this is going to really dilute our teaching. And I don't think that's a good way to think about it because we actually have an opportunity. This is how we should view it. It's an opportunity to teach believers from other traditions who weren't as well taught. If most of the good teachers are drifting towards a handful of denominations and we start merging with denominations that don't have all that many teachers... What an opportunity for discipleship for these people. And we should not be we should not fear the fact that we're going to have unlearned men and women come to our churches if we start having mergers. That's actually a, a tremendous opportunity to teach, to disciple. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to try to quickly go through baptism and Lord's Supper. First of all, Lord's Supper. Open communion only. And that's going to anger some people who are dead already, who had fierce debates about this. But open communion is the only way. Closed communion says only if we approve of who you are can you take communion. We have rigorously examined you. We know that your fit, your practice of life lines up with your profession of faith. Only you can. If you're a visitor, sorry, you can't. Um, that's closed communion. Open communion is the only way, though. Open communion is... As long as you have a profession of faith, you are a believer in good standing in a church, you may partake. Now, the pastor should give the warnings still. The Bible is clear that there are warnings for improperly taking communion. Uh, so if once he gives the required warnings, we should not be barring people from taking the Lord's Supper. Open communion only. There's a lot more I could say about that, but even in the passages talking about it, Paul says, examine ourselves. Let us examine ourselves to see if we are worthy. Not having um, people decide for us, essentially. Uh, when it comes to baptism, I mentioned this last week, but I don't... Like, do you actually think it's impossible for Paedo-Baptists and Credo-Baptists to practice both in a church and be charitable to those on the other side? I mean that. You think it's impossible? We should be charitable to those. That's another thing that I'm getting at, is there should be a broad charity that we have to genuine believers of other traditions. 
Now, you might think that paedo-baptism is wrong and improper, but you should take a charitable stance towards those who convictionally believe it. Likewise, other way around. If you are a paedo, uh, if you're a, yeah, other way around too. Uh, believers' bap baptism people should not be seen by paedo-baptists in a skeptical light as though they don't love their children or want their children to be in the church. We should interpret these things with some charity. And so, I don't see why paedo-baptist families couldn't be in a church with credo-baptists and those who are convicted of paedo-baptism have their infants baptized in the church and those convicted of credo-baptism don't get baptized until a credible profession of faith later on. And, I mean, could you imagine even if you had two pastors on staff, two elders, one is a paedo-baptist, one is a credo-baptist, do you actually think that's impossible to work out if we're being charitable to those on the other side? I don't think it is. I really don't. Now, barring this, though, we can still have denominational unity uh, even if we don't want to have that type of merger yet. We can still have denominational unity, but the disputed practice of baptism would just go along each church's or presbyteries or association's line. So we could have a reformed evangelical denomination in Windsor and the the Paedo-Baptist Presbyterians and the Credo-Baptist Baptists are in the same denomination, but if there's ever issues about baptism, we just refer it to the local church level. That's not going to go up for uh, to a higher middle court level. We can, st we can still have denominational unity. Just let the question of baptism be resolved in each individual church. I don't see why this would be completely uh, barring of denominational unity. So, we would be more united, broadly, if we were charitable towards others, and we even learned from others. This, this would be a be very beautiful thing if we could do this on the issue of baptism. Now, this is a podcast. I can't get deep into all these things, and I'm already over time, but um, just think about, think about that a little bit more. Let's have some love and respect for believers of others' traditions. Uh, and one way to do that is to be involved in their ministries and be involved in groups with them. I'm harping on that horn again. Being involved with believers of other traditions has so many benefits to it for you, for them, for the church at large, for promoting denominational reunion. This is going to help you be less suspicious of other believers. Like, oh, they're, they're Calvinist. Oh, I don't know about that. If you start interacting with believers of other traditions, you'll be less suspicious. You'll be less divisive over minor issues rather than major issues. And you'll retreat less into your own denominational corner. The more engagement you have with believers of other traditions, you're not going to be so tempted to just go back, be retreatist. Just I'm going to fall back to my own uh, confessions, my own corner, and not interact with anybody else. I'm happy here with my tiny church, and that's it. We're not going to have any unity with anyone else. Uh, have some love and respect for believers of others' traditions. We would be in a much better place if believers routinely engaged with those of other traditions. And again, actual believers, not the liberal ones, not the ones who don't believe in the authority of Scripture. Barring that even, even a loose denominational agreement is better than none. Even if we're just loosely engaging, in many ways, we're going to formally agree to pray for one another, to 
uh, I don't know, support one another's missionaries even? Like, we can just be pretty loose about this. We're going to pray, we're going to do some events, maybe we'll do some evangelistic outreaches. If that's all there is, and, we're, and, and the Nicene Creed is like the lowest confessional standard that we, uh, that we have as our unity marker, even that's better than nothing. Even that, we are, then we are affirming that we are genuine believers together in the kingdom of God. Even if we're not having the same unity that the church had in the first couple centuries, a loose denominational agreement is better than none. And over time, we can start merging closer and closer and solve more issues. But we don't need to solve every single detail before merging. That's one thing we have to get past, is that uh, if we don't have baptism resolved, we can't join. I don't think, I'm not convinced of that. If we don't have communion, the real presence of Christ versus memorial, uh, if we don't have that figured out, we can't merge, we can't join. I'm not convinced of that. So doctrinal issues, major on the majors, minor on the minors, and we can have unity uh, denominationally, even if individual churches in this unity will practice it their preferred way. That's okay. Let's, let's get some unity and then we'll work it out. Okay, so this is the longest one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this series. This is the last one on the Unity session, so we'll move on to something else next week. But I want to thank you for listening. Please let me know what you think. There's a lot to think about on this, and I would, uh, I would happily accept comments, challenges, questions, whatever. Uh, this is a big topic for a lot of people, and it's a new topic for a lot of people, so I'd love to hear what you think. Thank you for listening to the City of the Great King podcast. God bless. Go in the nations. Bye-bye.